Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Recently, with the news between Russia and Ukraine, in our Catholic devotion, we have fasted for world peace, especially at the request of our Holy Father, Pope Francis. Some have drawn attention to the fact of Our Lady's message in Fatima, which called for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray the rosary every day for peace in the world. With the situation going on between the Ukraine and Russia, there has been a lot of attention that has been given to practices of faith and devotion in Ukraine. I'm very excited today to have a conversation with Richard Lennar, who recently earned his doctorate in sacred theology from the University of Dayton in Ohio, and he focused on Marian devotion in Ukraine. And so he's going to share with us about the different aspects of devotion to Mary and what comprises it and what we can take away and grow in our appreciation for the Ukrainian people as so many of our hearts are breaking, seeing the news all over about the tragic situation there. So thanks so much for agreeing to be with me today, Richard. Thank you for having me, Father. And maybe, first of all, you wrote your dissertation on Ukrainian Marian devotion, which is a pretty niche topic. I'm sure not a lot of people had done this before, but what was your interest? Why choose this topic of anything else you could have written on? Well, that is a bit of a story. Uh, The short answer would be that uh, I have um, acquired over the years the ability to read and translate Russian, the Russian language. I studied it in college and was trained on translating scholarly Russian at college. And I wanted to use that knowledge to help bring over some things uh, to us from the from the Eastern Church that um, we might not normally have uh, access to. And that was a topic that I was, the kind of topic I was looking for for my dissertation. Uh, of course, for a dissertation, you want to do something that's original. And at the uh, International Marian Institute at the University of Dayton, where I study, uh, they are associated with the Marian Library, the largest library in the world, uh, with a collection of uh, books and materials about our Blessed Mother. Uh, That library has what they call the Ukrainian Marian Archive. It's a collection of 18 bankers' boxes of materials that were assembled back in the 1980s by a Ukrainian uh, a lady who, um, uh, who worked at the library, and uh, uh, she collected mainly newspaper and magazine clippings, but also uh, uh, pictures, uh, there are postcards, there's poetry, there's artwork, a uh, wide variety of materials all related to the Ukraine devotion of uh, Ukrainian Catholics. And when I say Ukrainian Catholics, I'm referring to Ukrainian Catholics who immigrated to the United States, Canada, uh, Brazil, other places in the New World. They left Ukraine beginning the second half of the 19th century to escape persecution to their home country. So getting into it, uh, the Ukrainian language is very similar to Russian. Uh, If you know Spanish and Italian, for instance, that would be a good comparison to how close they are. So it took a little effort, but I'm able to, with um, 
with a little work, I could translate and read these materials. And they, they speak to a very warm and uh, devotion to Our Lady, a strong trust in her protection. And it go it, it really uh, is a type of devotion that looks back for a thousand years, for the thousand years that Ukraine has existed. Marian devotion has existed there from the beginning. So that's what brought me to write about Our Lady in Ukraine. In your dissertation, you begin the second chapter by speaking about general aspects of Catholic Ukrainian culture and Marian devotion. And the very first two points you bring up there are the influence from Eastern Christianity and Slavic commonality. And that's one thing that maybe people who are Roman Catholics, who are Western believers, they might not really have much knowledge of the Eastern Church with the differences of the celebration of liturgy, for example. Uh, They call it the divine liturgy. They have lots of incense and chanting, and they have icons and very beautiful spaces of worship. So what's the influence of Eastern Christianity and also the Slavic commonality that the Ukrainians would share with other Slavic nations? Yeah, when it comes to the influence of uh, the Eastern Christianity, uh, you mentioned two important things. Um, First of all, they do use uh, their own form of the liturgy. Um, When we talk about this, we should be clear there are there. There's, a, you, there's an Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which is the majority of the Christians there, but there are also two Eastern Rite Catholic churches, and I'll speak primarily about them. Um, these churches do use the Eastern form of the liturgy, um, called the Divine Liturgy, or uh, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. It's a liturgy that originated back in the time of the Church Fathers, as the name would suggest. Um, it has developed over the centuries, but it, it's essentials. It's a liturgy that was created either by St. John Chrysostom or other individuals at that time. That's a, that's a complicated topic, its actual origin. But it is a distinct liturgy. Um, and the one of the things that's important about the liturgy for... Um, Eastern Marian devotion, um, and I think this would be true of all the Eastern churches, is devotion there in general is different than what we have in the West. Um, uh, we think of devotion as veneration and praise and um, supplication, you know, invoking the help of the saints, our Blessed Mother and the other saints. Um, but our devotion is very strongly rooted in our theology. If you will, it's a consequence of our theology, and devotion has developed over the centuries as theological, um, you know, there's been development of doctrine, and our devotion has reflected doctrinal changes. In the East, it's a little different. They're very mystical over there. They aren't analytical the way we are. They don't they don't write treatises about Mariology, for instance, uh, like you would find in the West. Uh, uh, for them, the primary source of Marian devotion is the liturgy, and above all, Mary is the, uh, for the Ukrainians, well, let's keep it Eastern, Theotokos, you know, a, a term equivalent to our term, Mother of God, but really invoking the notion that Mary is the one who bears God within herself. Um, 
Ukrainians use the word Bohoroditsa, which is semantically equivalent to Theotokos. Um, but Eastern devotion is mystical. It's not analytical. And its primary quality, at least when you're talking about Mary, is that it's laudatory, that um, it praises Mary because of the fact that she is the mother of God and she is all holy and all pure and accurate. And because she's full of grace and the most holy possible, as holy as it is possible for a being to be, um, there's no limit to the praise that should be offered to her. And this is really the basis of Eastern devotion, just this spontaneous laudatory praise of Mary. Um, it isn't that they don't ask for Mary in intercession and help. Of course they do. But supplication is much more secondary there, and it is very much mystical. Now, when you want to look at what's specifically Slavic about Marian devotion, I would point to um, the quality of maternal pity which you see represented very much in icons, at least some of the icons of Our Lady that are popular in, in the Slavic countries. Um, this is something that really connects, I think, with the Slavic mindset, if you will, especially in Russia and Ukraine, that Mary is a mother who has pity on her children. They're, they're wayward sinners that are dependent on her for her help and intercession, uh, to you know, for, for forgiveness of sins and to bring them to heaven. Very strong element in Slavic devotion. You see this very much with the Ukrainians as well. This idea that they're completely dependent on Mary, and the, especially the notion of protection. And I think that is where you get into what might be a unique aspect of Ukrainian devotion, because they're a country that has a history over the last thousand years of suffering endless invasions and persecutions. Um, I mean, for many centuries, they were not an independent country. Um, they only became independent in 1991 when the Soviet Union fell. There was this very strong devotion to Marian protection. The very first princes of Ukraine, uh, Prince uh, Vladimir the Great, who founded Ukraine in 988, uh, when he converted to Christianity, the whole country became Christian at that time. And his son, Yaroslav the Wise, actually, from the very beginning of their rule as uh, the first princess of Ukraine, placed Ukraine under Mary's protection. They made her the patroness of Ukraine. And what was combined with that is uh, there is a uh, apparition of Our Lady that's very well known in the East. Uh, it occurred in about the year... Uh, 900 or so in Constantinople, uh, when the uh, the city of Constantinople was surrounded and being uh, attacked by a foreign army. And the people of the city had gathered in the cathedral there in Constantinople to pray to Our Lady. And she appeared to them, and uh, according to the story, this is not an approved apparition, but its influence is immense. So... Um, what's important is its practical influence. Mary appeared to the uh, people and spread her veil over the congregation, the, the gathered people, her veil, what the Ukrainians call her pokrov. And 
through this protection, the invading army was uh, turned away and the city was saved. And that idea of Marian protection through her pokrov, through her protecting veil, is something that caught on in the Slavic churches much more than it did in the other Eastern churches. There is a veneration of Mary and her intercession and protection in the Eastern church. The, uh, they call it the Feast of the Intercession of the Theotokos. It occurs either, depending on what calendar you use, October 1st or uh, October uh, 13th, I believe. Um, but that feast of the intercession of Theotokos is especially important in Ukraine. The, the current Ukrainian government made it a uh, national holiday, I think, in 2014, somewhere around that time. It's always been a national day of celebration in Ukraine, uh, an ethnic celebration of what you would expect to see in, you know, national food, music, dancing, and uh, it's a national holiday, even for, you know, non-Catholics, non-Christians. Um, but that is an example of their devotion to Mary, and the, the devotion to Mary and protection through her program is very much a unique um, aspect of Ukrainian devotion. And to put it in a context that would relate to the terrible events that are happening there now, during World War II, there was an army in the Ukraine. It was called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And it fought, beginning in about 1941-42, not to fight against the invading Germans, but to fight against the communists, against the Red Army. And they... That army was sworn in on the day of Mary, on the day of the feast of the Pokrov, of Mary's intercession. And um, the banner of that army um, that they carried and used in their uh, uh, in their resistance to the Soviets um, contains uh, an image of one of the icons of Mary with her Pokrov spread over the Ukrainian people. So those are some examples of Marian devotion in the East and, you know, what's unique about the Ukraine. When I think about Marian devotion here in the West, we always have a lot of different titles for the Blessed Mother. We have a whole litany of Loretto with these different titles. And then culturally, there are different devotions to Our Lady. So we think about Central America. There's Our Lady of Divine Providence, Our Lady of Cobre. So there's kind of local devotions to Mary. And you mentioned one of the titles for Theotokos uh, that the Ukrainians have a devotion to. Uh, are there other titles that emerge in Ukrainian devotion to Mary? They do use other titles. Um, again, Bohoroditsa, Mother of God, um, their word for Mother of God, I would say is one of the most common um, I wouldn't say they really have a lot of titles, but they do have two adjectives that they use constantly. And they would be the adjectives that are equivalent to our words for pure and immaculate. But uh, when they use them, they are used in a way with a prefix in Ukrainian, which intensifies those adjectives. Uh, it would be like most holy in English. But it's more than an English superlative adjective it's not most holy, it's most holy possible. So they refer to the most holy virgin, the most pure virgin, the most pure mother, most pure uh, uh, 
Most Holy Mother. Those are the titles that you'll see most commonly. Um, you know, the rosary is not a big devotion in um, Orthodox Church, but it is among Ukrainian Catholics, and they do refer to her sometimes as Queen of the Rosary. And, of course, they do refer to her as Queen of Ukraine and with the Ukrainian Catholics. But those other titles um, are much less frequent, and they don't tend to use titles that are associated with geographic areas where, you know, where we have the apparitions of Mary and we have Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Guadalupe, La Salette, and so on. Um, don't see that very much. Um, the apparitions, there haven't really been a lot of, there aren't any apparitions in Ukraine that are approved by the Catholic Church, although there are legendary stories of Marian apparitions. Uh, some of which are very important, like the Pokrov, as I explained earlier. So most holy, most pure, those are the titles, along with Mother of God, that are most common. You mentioned earlier that there were these 18 banker boxes of materials related to the Ukraine and Marian devotion. That's really what you were basing your study here and your doctoral dissertation on. And in your dissertation, you say that, you know, one of the criterion you were using to go through the material was, you know, did it appeal in a time of suffering? So, of course, right now, the Ukrainian people are suffering quite a great deal. What are some of the other sufferings that they have? And then I also noticed there was another section called the helplessness of the believer. And I would think that in a time of suffering, too, there is that sense of helplessness. And so they, what do you do then? You turn to your mother. You turn to Mary in that time. Right, yeah, it's just, it's just a natural thing with the Slavic orientation towards maternal pity. That when they look at these icons of Mary with Jesus, you know, of the various types, I mean, we see Mary with Jesus, we see the Incarnation, we think of Mary as the Mother of God, but they see something deeper. They see this maternal pity and um, Mary's care and their dependency on her that makes them, it makes a, a viewer of the icon feel their sinfulness and their need for Mary and her intercession. But to get to the sufferings of the Ukrainian people, this is a very long story, but, um, you know, Ukraine was founded back in the uh, late 10th century, and um, for the first couple hundred years, it was uh, the area around Kiev, where Ukraine started, was more or less a united political entity, but it began to break up, um, oh, a century or so after uh, the first princes, uh, mentioned, yeah, uh Prince Vladimir and Yaroslav the Wise. And since that time, the Ukrainians have suffered a series of invasions and catastrophes. Uh, they've invaded, they were invaded, uh, I'll just go in reverse chronological order here to um, make it more relevant for our listeners. Um, one of the events that looms large for the Ukrainians and the Russians that is a factor in what's going on there right now is, of course, World War II, when the Germans and Nazis invaded Ukraine. And Ukraine was a major battlefield of World War II. The country was devastated. If you know anything about military history, you'll know that there were huge battles around Kiev, Kharkov, down in the Crimea. There was a siege of Sevastopol. Uh, one of the largest battles in military history was an encirclement battle in, in Kiev uh, in 1941. Um, 
And, of course, the country suffered enormously under uh, the Russian invasion. Uh, now, during most of the 20th century, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, and they were persecuted by the Soviets. Um, they, uh, their language was suppressed. Their ethnic identity was suppressed. Uh, the Catholic Church was essentially illegal underground for most of that century. Um, if you go back uh, a little further to the 1930s, uh, the Soviet dictator Stalin created an artificial famine in Ukraine to break the will of the people. It's called the Holodomor, and millions of Ukrainians died in this famine in the 1930s. It was uh, it was a deliberate act of genocide by Stalin, but was also related to his efforts to uh, collectivize the. Uh, agricultural system to create collective farms under the communist system. Um, before that, you have the uh, Russian Civil War in the late, around 1917 to about 1921, in that period. Uh, Ukraine was one of the main battlefields of the Russian Civil War, again, suffered terribly. Just before that, they had been invaded by the Germans again, or for the first time, uh, in World War One, and much of their country was occupied for a period of time, some of it was annexed to Germany after Russia lost the war. Ukraine did briefly achieve a period of independence during the Russian Civil War, but they were eventually um, absorbed into the Soviet Union. If you go back before that, there was the Crimean War in the uh, 1850s, I believe, where the British and the French invaded uh, Crimea. And there was a war with the Russians and the Ukrainians at that time. Uh, Ukraine suffered somewhat under Napoleon's invasion. Uh, most of Napoleon's invasion was further north, more up in Belarusia and Russia proper. But there was suffering during the time of the uh, Napoleonic invasion. Um, the Russian people before the Russian—I'm sorry—the Ukrainian people before the Russian Revolution. Uh, suffered immensely under the Tsars. They were persecuted by the Tsars, and to some extent by the Orthodox Church. And to go back before that, you had wars with the Poles, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. There was a time uh, of, of great uh, trouble and devastation, and more, I think, in maybe the 16th century, 17th century, with the wars related to Poland. Uh, before that, um, even further back into history, you had invasions by the Tartars. There was a Mongol invasion, which devastated Ukraine. Kiev was sacked, for instance, and the Polovetsians before that. So they have a long history of being invaded and persecuted by um, other countries, a whole succession of them, most recently the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Tsars, the, the Soviets. Um, so unfortunately, what's happening over there is nothing new. But they do have this terrible history. But throughout all of it, they have remained devoted to Our Lady and have trusted in her protection that she would bring them through. And the one thing you could say about all these invaders of Ukraine is they all eventually fail. None of them are there anymore. Um, and, of course, I think with uh, very much that we could draw the application, and there are other reasons I would say this as well, that, you know, with this historical record and Mary having been placed from the beginning of Ukraine under the protection 
of our Blessed Mother, that this current invasion will fail as well. That was a very extensive history that you just gave and kind of detailed all of the different ways that Mary has been present in the time of suffering of the Ukrainian people. And another aspect that you focus on and that you draw out is, as you just mentioned, there are a lot of different wars and such, but you also want to focus a bit on Mary and the military and kind of her presence in that sense as well. And this is an interesting thing with Marian devotion. And I've read things from kind of naysayers of Marian devotion that say, you know, isn't it odd that the Blessed Mother would be called upon during a time of war in which people are going to die? So, like, we celebrate these military battles, like the Battle of Lepanto with the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary. And and there are a few others uh, that we celebrate throughout the liturgical year. And so some people say that, no, no, we shouldn't be celebrating these feast days. But Mary is present still, and she is called upon in the time of war. So what was your study? What did you find about Mary and the military? Well, there are a couple ways to approach that. Uh, What I would say is just as a characteristic of Ukrainian devotion, um, it is self-evident to the Slavic mindset, and especially the Ukrainians being a people who've suffered so much, that Mary's divine maternity and her purity and her holiness make her a powerful intercessor. And for this, in a Slavic view, um, this makes Mary an instrument of God's protection. And the military is very much in the Ukrainian mindset uh, uh, or devotional outlook, if you will, associated um, associates the military with Mary and protection. I mentioned the Ukrainian insurgent army during World War II as being big example, an army that was sworn into existence on the Feast of Mary's Pokrov, the Feast of Her Protection, and fought under that banner. Um, So there's always been this strong military association. To give a few other examples, if you go back a few hundred years uh, uh, in history, uh, you know, during the Middle Ages especially, or the early modern period, the Cossacks were uh, uh, a very important uh, aspect of Ukrainian history, they were viewed as folk heroes by the uh, Ukrainian people. In the West, we might tend to think of them more as, you know, bandits or marauders or, you know, robbers, but the Ukrainian people saw them as heroes because they fought against uh, oppressive foreign rulers, especially the Polish government and to some extent later the Tsars. Um, and if you read these writings in the uh, Marian Ukrainian archive that I looked at at the Marian Library in Dayton, uh, there are examples of a very nostalgic view of the Cossacks, which were very militaristic. Um, and there are descriptions of the Cossacks riding into battle under the banner of Mary, under the banner of her Pokrov. Um, and there's no discontinuity at all for Ukrainians to see the Cossacks, this military force, or the Ukrainian insurgent army later on in World War II, as being instruments of barrier protection. There's a great deal of material on that Ukrainian insurgent army in the Marian Library. It was ultimately defeated by the early 1950s, but there are articles about its commander, about veterans' meetings, veterans' organizations that, you know, continued after the war was over. Uh, but there was a very strong Marian connection. 
I think you could really see the military connection if you go right back to the very beginning of uh, Aryan devotion in the Ukraine. I mentioned the first princes, uh, Prince Vladimir and Prince Yaroslav the Wise. Um, they built churches to bury from the very beginning when Ukraine was placed under the uh, uh, patronage and protection of our Mary by of of uh, Mary by the Ukrainian princes. And a couple examples of that are you know, the Church of St. Sophia um, in downtown Kiev. Actually, I should say it's a, it's a cathedral. Um, this is a Marian church, one of the first churches built in Ukraine. It goes back a thousand years. It has been, well, let me first say, if you, look, if you go inside the church and you look up at the dome, there's a six-foot uh, high, I'm sorry, six-meter-high mosaic of Our Lady, which was built uh, or constructed uh, right in the early decades of the existence of Ukraine. It's very much in the style of that period. It's a beautiful uh, mosaic. If you, It's called the Aranta, which is the Latin word for praying, and it's, uh, it depicts Mary with arms upraised praying, and this icon is an enduring symbol of uh, Marian uh, presence and faithfulness to the Ukrainian people. And the reason you can say that is throughout all the wars and devastations that Ukraine has suffered, uh, the cathedral itself has been damaged or almost completely destroyed on several occasions. But the wall on which that mosaic stands has never been destroyed. It has survived. The Ukrainians call it the indestructible wall. And if you look at some of the videos that are on YouTube today of downtown Kiev, you can see this dome at the church. And it's still standing. And it's um, I'm confident it will survive this invasion as well. Um, so the, the um, survival of this Oranta mosaic is very much a visible manifestation of Mary's continuing presence with Ukraine. Uh, to draw a more specific military connection with the early uh, period of Ukrainian history, um, when Kiev was founded and became an important city in early Ukraine, uh, as was the custom in those days, they, it was fortified. They built a wall around it. And there were three gates, and over the the most important gate was called the Great Gate, the Golden Gate. Um, and it was the main entrance into the city. Um, it was designed to provide protection for the city and uh, control who went in and out. And what Prince Yaroslav did is on top of that gate, he put a church, he built a church to the Annunciation. And he wanted to show visibly that Mary was, that Ukraine had been placed under the military had been placed under the protection of Mary in a very military sense, because this gate was a military fortification, and they built a church to Our Lady on top of it. Um, so this is another example of the connection of the military with, uh, you know, with Our Lady and her protection. Well, one of the words you kept using uh, throughout our conversation thus far has been that word protection, from the Prokov to the protection that Mary obtained during wars and such. And I'm thinking that in a very personal way, an individual Ukrainian in person would have a devotion to Mary's protection in their own home. And that can often take the 
form of having a Marian icon, just like we in the West would have a statue of Mary. They have these different icons. And one of the things I learned from your dissertation was that Our Lady of Vladimir, which is one of the most popular icons in Slavic Marian devotion, came to the Ukraine during the time of Prince Yaroslav the Wise in the 11th century. So this is a very common image uh, of an icon. Uh, I know that where I went to seminary at Mundelein Seminary in Illinois, that in one of the hallways, as you were coming down the stairwell, this was the icon that was there. And so um, what is the story of this icon in particular, Our Lady of Vladimir, and how do icons maybe continue that idea of protection for Ukrainians on an individual basis? Well, just to, I'll, I'll answer both parts of that. I'll start by talking about icons in general. I mean, you can draw a parallel with statues, you know, holy cards or something in the West, you know, that we think of as sacramentals. But icons are much more for in the Eastern Church in general and for Ukrainians in particular. I mean, icon is not just an image that makes you remember something or, you know, turns your thought towards holy things which is, you know, the idea we would associate with the sacramento in the West. It predisposes us for the reception of grace. But icons are more than that in the, in the East. They, have, they are a channel of divine grace. They make what that icon represents present. Um, so when I talked about how maternal pity is associated with these icons of Mary in the East, that's an example of something that for uh, a Ukrainian, when they look at one of these icons, that maternal pity and Mary's care and protection is made very real, very present to them. It's a sense of channel of grace, um, a way in which Mary um, exercises her intercession, if you will. So that makes um, the icons uh, very important. That gives them a very you know, personal view of uh, things. Um, so that's something we need, to, we need to remember about icons. Now, when you talk about Our Lady of Vladimir, that's one of several icons that are very important in Ukraine. That icon today is actually in an art gallery in the Kremlin in Moscow, or at least in Moscow, I should say. Um, but that icon was originally present in a... Uh, in another church in downtown Ukraine, when it was created, um, the exact origin of it is, you know, disputed by art historians, but that icon was present in Ukraine in, um, uh, in the early centuries of Ukraine's existence. And um, it was eventually taken by one of their uh, princes to a a city, I think, more in western Ukraine at that time, it was called Vladimir. That's how it got the name of Our Lady of Vladimir. Of course, it is named for Vladimir the Great, who was the, if you will, the founding father of Ukraine, their first prince. Um, but if you read the material in the, um, again, in the Ukrainian Marian Archive in the Marian Library, this is a very much a sore point with the Ukrainians that they feel that icon was stolen from them and taken, you know, illegally to Moscow. And, of course, it is one of the quintessential Russian icons of Our Lady as well now. But its origin is pretty clear historically. I'm not an expert on art history, but um, 
I think it's where it's clear in the case of this icon that its origins, you know, were in um, Russia. And, you know, to go, I'm sorry, where in Ukraine it was taken to Russia, it was stolen, according to Ukrainians, and taken to Russia. Um, there are writings that talk about that in the, in the Ukrainian archive. But, you know, these icons are very important for Ukrainians. I think this would be something we could talk about, general Slavic and either Eastern spirituality. But there are icons present in every, every home. Our Lady of Vladimir, there are other ones. Um, there are icons associated, an icon associated with um, uh, the monastery in Kiev, the Pochiev Ar Monastery, where there have been stories of married apparitions over the years. There's an icon associated with that uh, monastery that's very um, important as well. I would note, I was uh, looking at uh, the news the other day, and they were talking about a Ukrainian couple that had got married um, on their way to the front, if you will. Um, but there's a beautiful picture of them standing in the Eastern Church, and um, you can see them in front of the Akatastasis inside the church, but they're holding icons. Uh, that would be part of the traditional wedding celebration. That's something we probably do typically in the West. Um, so that's just one indication of how important uh, these icons are. But um, I would also mention to draw another military connection, um, the city of Mariupol, which, of course, is being devastated right now and surrounded. If you look at that name carefully, that is basically a Greek form of Mary City. And as the Holy Father pointed this out on Sunday in his address, his, uh, um, he gave an audience, I think, Sunday afternoon. That city is named after Mary. Actually, it's associated with um, an icon of Mary. And um, it's a city that very much has had um, devotion to Mary and her protection. And um, maybe one of the reasons the Russians are having so much trouble capturing that city is because they are, in a sense, fighting directly against Our Lady there as well. So I don't want to take anything away from the Ukrainian army and people, but um, Mary is very much fighting, I think, in interceding for them. Just as she is in Kiev uh, with her Orata icon there in the... Uh, in the cathedral, which has always stood and always will stand. Um, and I think these are examples of how uh, Mary devotion and the icons even do tie into this with this military connection. One of the things I really took away as I perused your dissertation was that Mary has been present all throughout the history of this country. And it made me think, I'm like, well, what about the United States of America? How could we trace Marian devotion here? And a few hallmarks come to mind. For example, the first Marian shrine in Our Lady of La Leche down in St. Augustine, Florida. You have the Battle of New Orleans, where Our Lady of Prompt Succor is implored by the Ursuline nuns and General Andrew Jackson. You have the Marian apparition of 1859 in Champion, Wisconsin, the dedication of a basilica to the Immaculate Conception. So there are different moments, I think. And of course, the general devotion of the people as well, the, the many various Marian shrines that have popped up all throughout our country. Uh, but I don't think it's as intimate as it is 
with the case of the Ukrainian people. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I think we're very much a country of immigrants, and I think immigrants bring their Marian devotion with them. But I, you see that with the Ukrainians that immigrated to the United States, that they bring this intimate devotion to Mary with them. But there are hints here and there of something deeper. You mentioned during the War of 1812 uh, with the Ursuline nuns near New Orleans, um, the very clear example of Marian intercession in a military context that was one of the most devastating and comprehensive victories of the United States during that war against, uh, you know, Great Britain. Um, I mean, there are Marian shrines, you know, around the country, um, but they tend to be, I think, derivative. Uh, just as an example, I did my uh, undergraduate, I'm sorry, my master's degree at St. Mary the Woods College in Terre Haute, Indiana, and they do have a replica of the shrine of uh, Lourdes there and um, a smaller uh, shrine to Our Lady of Fatima. But again, these are things that have been brought in, you know, from the outside, um, uh, I'm a big military history fan, and if you uh, visit Gettysburg, um, I'm, a, I'm a Civil War buff, right next to Gettysburg in Emmitsburg, there is the National Shrine of Lourdes, which is almost an exact replica of the Basipiel, um uh, Grotto, where Our Lady appeared to St. Bernadette. But again, this is something you know that was derived from somewhere else. Now, I have been up in uh, Wisconsin, Robinsonville, and the surrounding area with the, um, with the apparition that was approved there. Uh, you know, it's near Green Bay um, in Wisconsin. And that is a very beautiful site, and we do have that approved apparition here now in the United States. Um, but in general, although I think if you looked at the pre-Vatican II period in the United States, I think Catholic immigrants and their descendants brought with them a certain Marian devotion. Um, I think it tended to be more of a uh, a reliance on supplication and praying to Mary along with the other saints. Um, certainly appreciation for her holiness and sanctity, but not with the intimacy that you see with, say, with the Ukrainian Catholics. And of course, it's a whole other topic, but we could talk about the influence of Vatican II on Marian devotion in some of the Western countries. And I think, you know, Marian devotion, at least we talk, those of us in Mariology talk about a decade of silence after Vatican II, where Marian devotion was almost off the table completely. And, um, uh, you know, Pope, Pope Paul VI with, uh, you know, his... Uh, Apostolic Exhortation, Marialis Cultus, was trying to get Marian devotion back in the 1970s. And I think that's been an uphill climb in the United States since then. Um, you know, I know uh, I have a friend who's a priest now who was initially turned down for seminary because he prayed the rosary. He had to go to a different diocese. So I think in some parts of the church, there's been a marginalization of Marian devotion. And really prevented, I think, ordinary Catholics from having the appreciation for her that um, those of us who um, are more devoted to her feel that, you know, she deserves and would be beneficial for the whole Church. Um, uh, and that's something that the Ukrainian Catholics have never lost. And I would say in general, 
I would say the Eastern Church in general has not lost. Um, I don't think their Marian devotion has suffered at all. I mean, we have prayers to Mary and um, uh, things uh, that we do say. We have Linda and Loretta, we have the Rosary. These are good things. They may not be as popular as they were. But you think about the Eastern Church, um, Ukrainian Catholics, they have their activist hymn which is a, you know, it's the day means standing in Greek, and they'll stand for an hour or two, you know, in an assembly praying this prayer, you know, to Mary. Uh, we don't do that in the United States, you know. Um, I think the other thing when you talk about intimacy and to make a military collect connection um, that you don't see in the United States, but you see it, it with Ukraine, is I included pictures of some of the Ukrainian Christmas cards, in my dissertation, and um, a lot of them have a military subject. These are Christmas cards. They show a rifle, a soldier, Ukrainian soldier carrying a rifle on his knee, praying to Mary. We don't send postcards like that in the United States. There is an example of Mary with the infant Jesus sitting in front of a ruined church in Ukraine. Uh, we don't send those kind of postcards. There are postcards that have pictures of the Cossacks. Uh, one of them is Christmas in uh, Zaporozhye, which was the main city of the Cossacks for a certain time. Um, so, you know, I think in the West, this idea of Madonna and Child has become a very stylized kind of art, almost a, uh, you know, a, a comet, and it doesn't have the impact it should. That It, um, it should affirm to us the reality of the Incarnation, that it really happened, and, you know, the power that Mary has, <clears throat> not just as an intercessor, but you know, especially the icons of the Hodegetri type, the ones where Mary's pointing to Jesus, she is the one pointing to Jesus. Um, she is the one who leads us to Christ. And those are aspects of Marian devotion that I don't think the Ukrainian Church has ever lost. Maybe the suffer their suffering has made them you know, more cognizant of their need to rely on Mary, this total dependence on her and her maternal pity. Something we, you know, maybe don't have as much of as we should have in the West. So you've written this entire uh, dissertation on Mary and Ukrainian devotion. What's the biggest takeaway you had? Because, of course, you dedicated months, if not years, to this study. So... What do you walk away, and what's one thing, if you could share with anyone about Ukrainian Marian devotion, what would it be? I think it would be how effective an intercessor Mary is, and how reliable and faithful she is. That we can always depend on her, that no matter what happens, she will not abandon us, she will always be with us. She cares for her children, she is a powerful intercessor, um, we can place ourselves under her, place ourselves under her protection with confidence. And um, this, for me, these ideas became much more real. I think I became much more aware of this maternal presence in my life of someone who's protecting me. And uh, there are instances, anecdotes I could tell of very specific examples of that. Um, so I think that practical aspect of uh, Marian devotion is. Um, you know, a very strong application for me. I think what the war has made me realize 
is I watch these terrible images of the people suffering, the children being killed, the women being killed, civilian bodies lying in the streets, the destruction of their cities. It really made me feel that I think through my Marian devotion, I really have a, a deeper appreciation for people who are suffering. I have a great, greater sense of compassion. Um, I think in the United States, sometimes we could be insulated from that, at least some parts of us, some parts of the population. Um, and we don't have a real appreciation for what it means to suffer in the uh, not so much at a personal level. We all suffer in various ways, but as a nation, as a people. And I think I have a stronger appreciation for and compassion for the Ukrainian people and, you know, recognition of that we need to help them. And, uh, and you know, very help and assistance is very much an aspect of Marian devotion and protection. So I think I'm more aware of that as well. When I reference the fact that you wrote this doctoral dissertation, which can actually be found on the udane.edu website, and I'll put a link to it here in the show notes uh, that people could access it, people might be intimidated by the fact that it's a doctoral dissertation, but I've read, you know, maybe a good 25% of it, and it's a very readable dissertation and very enjoyable. Maybe it's because I love topics like this, but I think anybody could really pick up your dissertation. They could learn quite a big deal about uh, Marian devotion in the Ukraine. And really, you know, I don't think maybe before this war that is happening right now, this invasion of, of Russia, we probably didn't think too much about Ukraine ever as Americans or here in the West. But now this is an opportunity for us to learn about their country, just as you've given a great historical overview uh, of their country history and also then incorporating Mary in that. So I'm very appreciative that I found this work and that we're able to have this conversation today. Well, thank you, Father. I would just say about my dissertation, um, it is it was intended to take a little different approach rather than just getting into hard theology, if you will, like a dissertation sometimes do. I really felt if you're going to talk about Ukraine, you need to take a historical approach. You've got to talk about their history and how Marian devotion is related to their history, how it's been present in their history, how it's been influenced by their history. There's much more we could say about that. A lot of it's in my dissertation. But hopefully that might make it a little more accessible for some, you know, the ordinary reader. Um, dissertations are generally written for a very specific audience. Um, but uh, I think in my case... Um, most of it is really talking about uh, very practical aspects of Marian devotion, their history, the importance of the liturgy, icons. And in some of the later sections, I talk about their poetry and um, some of the stories they tell about Mary, which very much reflect their, their national view of Mary as a protectress. And uh, I think that's interesting as well. Uh, also, there's a section there about the... Uh, um, in 1988 was the celebration in the Ukraine of the coming of, uh, you know, it was the millennium of the coming of Christianity to Ukraine, which was a big celebration, and um, uh, there were a lot of political difficulties associated with that. I also talk a little bit about the apparitions. Um, uh, there aren't any approved apparitions there, but um, I mentioned the Pochigi Monastery, uh, the Constantinople 
of the, with the protected veil. But there was an apparition in the late 1980s at the village of Hrushiv that um, is probably a little better known. Um, again, it hasn't been approved, but um, I do talk about that. It got a lot of attention at the time, especially because it was right around the time of the millennium. But hopefully those things will make my dissertation more accessible. And I think that's what people will find when they look it up, finding the link in the show notes today. Today, our guest on How They Love Mary, Richard Lennar. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you, Father. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope that my conversation with today's guest was one that enriched you spiritually and also helped you to foster a deeper love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you do me a favor? Go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the podcast so that others might find it as a recommended podcast from other Catholic podcasts that they might listen to. And if you don't mind, share about the show on social media so that your friends and family might come to find it and be enriched by our conversations as well. And if you don't mind, you can follow me on social media at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And this show, How They Love Mary, will soon be a book available from Sophia Institute Press. You can already go over to their website and pre-order How They Love Mary. Thanks so much for listening. May God bless you today. Know of my prayers for you. And may Mary pray for you today and always.